This episode of the Paddock Pass podcast is brought to you by Renthal Street Hard Anodized Sprockets, up to 66% lighter than steel sprockets. Hello and welcome to the Paddock Pass podcast brought to you by Renthal Street. Go to renthal.com for chains, sprockets, bars, clip-ons and lots of other parts for your motorbike. On today's podcast, the third podcast in a week, Gordo, we've got World Superbikes taking centre stage. So Gordon Ritchie, as ever, bringing us all the news from the World SBK Paddock. And Gordo, we just had one of the best weekends of racing. You'll see, we saw Razgadi Oglu versus Bautista trading positions twice a lap for 20 laps. It's all been overshadowed by MotoGP and Mark Marquez. Uh, well, it's always going to be overshadowed by MotoGP, even if nothing was happening. Because that's the way the world's going, unfortunately. However, uh, no, it was fantastic. It was great to see, once again, like Most, remember race two in Most until the infamous tyre incident, that Toprak just wasn't giving up, no matter what. It just wasn't, he wasn't taking no for an answer. Um, and that's what, that's why we had those two quite astonishing races. Um, very difficult weekend for Ray. Um, he just wasn't at quite in amongst that fight, but dear me. Those two guys going at it. I mean, you see the comments on social media afterwards. People were just massively enthused by it, you know. And the outpourings of love for Top Rack because everybody knew he wasn't going to win, probably. Even though, and the only person that thought he might was Top Rack at one stage. And you see, I, I saw Top, I said a Top Rack I've never really seen before. He was publicly angry twice, totally frustrated and that was a very telling thing. You can see why the guys decided he has to try something. Because if he can't, after riding like that, and still not able to win, just because of one factor, then you can see why he thinks, okay, I need a better engine. If I'm going to fight this guy, I need a better engine. Because, Gordo, for me, I've seen better races, but I've never seen a better performance by an individual rider. Because Top Rack was... Top Rack was... Top Rack was as spectacular as ever. And we saw that any chance he got, he had to make the moves. I found it interesting though to talk to some riders on Sunday night and they said, "Mm, do you know what? You need to have different tactics sometimes. He was making the moves at the same corners all the time. Some riders felt he needed to force the move into turn 14 on the last lap, almost lull Bautista into coming through and then just do a crazy move into the penultimate corner and just upset the rhythm. I thought it was one, it was one of those ones that was quite similar to Rossi in Phillip Island in, what, 2002, I think it was, where he kept breaking early into the Honda hairpin and basically forced Alex Barros to outbreak himself on the last lap just by breaking at his normal breaking marker then. This was one of those times where almost the red mist was down on top rack, which is something we don't see often, like you said, and it maybe clouded his vision a little bit? Um, I think there wasn't anything that Top Rack could do in that last third of the track that was going to make any difference to, to Batista coming through on him. I just don't think... He, he just had so much that he would be able to claw it back. We did see a couple of gaps opening up, and Batista was able to close them straight away, not just on the straight. Um, it's all the little straights and so on. Batista's bike was working perfectly. Batista rode it perfectly. You can't argue with me, man. But I think Top Rack would have had to have got that a big move done away from him in the first two thirds of the track to get him literally so far away that even Batista couldn't catch him at the end of the straight. I thought it was interesting, Gordo, that we saw obviously Toprak just tried to do a series of Q laps at the end. 
But we're used to seeing it where the Ducati with more lean angle is still able to out accelerate people. With Top Rack, we saw it where with a lot more lean angle, he could still get the bike stopped and turned into the corners. This was super impressive. This was a perfect illustration of what makes Top Rack great. We all look at the upright braking performance because we see the big stoppies. But what makes Top Rack great is he can get the bike stopped while it's leaned over and then still find a little bit more braking right at the end of the corner still to make a move like he was doing. I thought it was maybe in turn 13 where we saw the best example of this. Yeah, I was I was amazed how many times he could he could get down the inside in the places that you're not really supposed to pass. Um, that's what made it so impressive for me. Top Rack's always the, the best of the outbreakers, but in the old days, an outbreaker was somebody who would just break later in a straight and then turn in like normal. Top Rack's breaking later than people in the straight, keeping a tighter line, going underneath them, he might be behind him when he starts that breaking manoeuvre and he can go through. That's unbelievable. It's also, one, it's his talent. It's his superpower as a personal rider. But that is also what is trained into him on top racks, uh, you know, when, when he goes training with all the other Turkish guys at Keenan's private track. That's all they do all day is beat that guy to that corner, overtake it every possibility, surprise him, frighten him, that he then is able to translate to a superbike. That's a difficult thing. It's easy enough doing a little 250, 300, whatever. But he's able to do that to the real world, to the best superbike riders out there. I thought on Sunday evening, you could see the sense of disappointment, not just for Toprak, but for Yamaha as well. Docilely in pit lane, you could see a man that always wears his heart in his sleeve, just letting that come to the boil. I went down into the pit box on Sunday night, spoke to Phil Marin, and I said... I tell you what, I don't know what more this guy can do to win races. And Phil said, every week we come off the pit wall and we say, that's the best job he can do. And then the next week he goes out and does it even better. But Phil also said, Top Rack was in the back of the team truck crying his eyes out after the race. He put everything into it. And he's beaten by a quarter of a second combined in both races after 30 laps of action on Sunday. And there was just that just sheer inevitability about it. On, on lap one of race two, my co-commentator Alex Raby said, and now can Top Rack defend? He's going to have to do this for all 20 laps. And that's exactly how it transpired. Yeah, and it was a 20-lap race. That's the thing that got me, is a lot of these races are go there for a while and then they get taken away. Someone breaks a break, someone runs wide, whatever. We had a consistent fight between those guys once it all settled down after the first couple of laps in the long race. End of the day, there is Top Rack was trying everything he could, pulling tricks out of the box that no one else can do, and it still wasn't enough just because of a disparity in corner X acceleration. Not even top speed. Top speed was obvious as well, but it didn't matter how cl- if Top Rack needed to be 100 yards away from Batista to win that race, and he would probably still have been overtaken on the straight. It, it's it's kind of not funny anymore. We have to look at something to change the regulations to stop that kind of thing happening because it totally spoiled it. And remember, Portimao's start-finish line is very close to the final corner. It's not right down the back at the further end of the straight. So the momentum thing is... You, you've got to acknowledge how well Alvaro and Ducati are doing. And as I, I spoke to the series organiser the weekend who agreed that we can't have punished people for showing up 
providing a load of bikes, but basically being very proactive in Superbike and creating a great bike within the rules, it's difficult to punish them. It's, how do you find it in yourself to punish them? Because other people don't even bother turning up. Or we give them special dispensation to bother turning up. I think one of the things that's interesting for me with Bautista was this weekend we saw it as well. He knew that the most important corners of the track for him were turns 14 and 15 onto the long straight. So he set his bike up for those two corners. His bike didn't look stable anywhere else. The changes of direction, you saw that a bit like Aragon, he was having to take a couple of bites at the cherry in a few places. He was making mistakes. So the bike wasn't easy for him, but he knew all he had to do was make sure it was working in that last sector. And that's that's what he was making it making it do. That's clever riding by well, it's clever approach by Ducati, clever engineering by his crew chief, and then good riding by Alvaro. Yes, but you also notice that Alvaro's riding externally starts to look a bit scrappy when someone's really giving him a load of pressure. And it's because he's he knows what the pace of the bike is. And after twenty nineteen he understands where not to go with the bike, where it shouldn't be. Okay, the bike's better. They've ironed out a lot of the faults the bike had then is a relatively new machine. So he's got a better package under him this year, but he also knows where the limitations of the cat are. And that's when you see him starting to get a bit squirrely. And you can and the more he's pushed, the more that happens. It wasn't a, to me it wasn't a a mistake that he realised that Johnny was on pole in Aragon, Johnny was on pole heat optimal. His obviously potential was really good. Top rack often looks not that great in practice, but you know he's going to turn up in the races. So I think the setup thing for a final corner, yeah, maybe, and I'm and, and I'm sure that's kind of what he was he knew that's where he would win and lose a close race. But he had to ride so hard everywhere else that even with a good setup, he would still be getting a bit squirrely. The more you have to fight, the less your setup matters, because the other guy's setup can't be that perfect either. When the two of them are pushing each other, you can't have a perfect setup because you have oh, stressed the tyres too much. But so's the other guy. If he's riding with you, you see you're more or less at the same level. We know the Ducati can use the tyre better. It goes round corners a lot better than it used to do. It's maybe not as good as a Yamaha or a Kawasaki when the, when the Kawasaki's got tyre. So there's advantages and disadvantages. Unfortunately, the minute the advantages of Ducati's got massively outweigh any of the other advantages the other bikes have got. And that's the problem. But you have to be Alvaro to do that. Even Michael Ruben Rinaldi, who's come back incredibly strong since he lost his contract, now he's all relaxed and so on, um, is still not quite able to do what Alvaro does. Um, after all those years on the bike. So you, there's so many factors. That's what makes these things interesting, is you get through all the factors of what it might be. But the setup of the bike for those corners, sure. Let's move on to Rinaldi then, Gordo, because the rider market's obviously one of the key things that we're going to talk about over the next few rounds. And for Rinaldi, I found it interesting, talking off the record to someone within Ducati, they said, when Rinaldi has lots of pressure on his shoulders, he makes mistakes, he's inconsistent. When he doesn't have that pressure... He's released and he's a fantastic rider and he does a great job. He's at three rounds in a row where he's done a great job. He doesn't have his future confirmed, but on the basis of everything we know about Michael's personality, his career up to this point, he certainly looks like a rider that knows where he's going to be next year. We've seen him walk around the paddock with a big smile on his face. He's been really relaxed. He's been very chipper. He's riding great. The Mark Marquez news came out. It can't have been a surprise to someone within Ducati that Mark Marquez was going to sign for Grassini. So therefore, all the rumours about Rinaldi potentially going to Honda, 
there's a little bit more credence to them when Mark eventually does confirm he's leaving. Lequon is likely to move to MotoGP. You wouldn't be surprised if the super relaxed and chilled Rinaldi is super relaxed and chilled because he had it in his back pocket that if Mark moves, I've got a hand the world superbike ride. And that might well be the case and they might have already signed everything now. Um, that I don't know. I did speak to someone very close to Michael at the weekend and they said he didn't have anything. And that was a, a slight concern. If he doesn't have a ride by now, um, yeah, I would be getting a bit worried if I was him because no, there's no automatics. Maybe Honda don't see taking one of the superbike riders over to MotoGP as the ideal thing to do. That everything is still too fluid, and as I say, I'm not convinced that that's what's going to automatically happen now. It wouldn't surprise me, and we might get the press release in five minutes. So you know, it's kind of slightly. I, I'm not. I'm not as convinced as other people that Michael knows where he's going. I think what he's done is he's, he's still living on the relief of not having to be the pressure of a factory Ducati rider next year. Yeah, that's that's probably also a little bit the case for him as well. And it's that battle between himself and Bassani that we've seen over the recent years. And it's very likely neither of them are going to be a Ducati rider next year. Bassani finally confirmed as a Kawasaki rider. It's been an open secret in the paddock for a long time. For me, I think I found it really interesting to see how Kawasaki's dealed with this. Because any time that we've had Gimroda on the TV broadcast over the last few rounds, it's been talking about lots of riders being interested in the bike even last time out in Portimao when we spoke to him on Friday it was oh we're still talking to riders we've still got this that and the other and then five hours later it's announced that it's Bassani Bassani was the rider that they obviously targeted he's fifth in the world championship he's the highest ranked rider left in the championship without a contract for next year he wants to be a factory rider he's motivated to ride the Kawasaki and um it didn't really come as a surprise whenever it was finally confirmed. No, it didn't. Um, I think there was a bit more of a hiccup in the negotiations than was expected. We did expect to hear this news a lot sooner. Um, the paddock did. Um, so I think there was possibly another wee side-eye look to someone else to see, mm, what about this guy instead of him? Um, I don't think Bassani was a shoe-in. I think there had to be people convinced this was a good idea. Um I think it's, in my honest opinion, I think it can go one of two ways. One is it's going to be really good by the end of the season, maybe. But they're going to go, yep, we've managed to harness this kid's talents. 24, not a kid, but he's young for a superbike rider. Younger end for a superbike rider. Um, And they they are very good at training and developing and and moving riders on if the rider buys into it. Um, Bassani might end up being a bad signing for Kawasaki if they can't find a way to mesh together. But he's desperate to be a factory rider. So if you're looking at it from his point of view, then he would be, if he's smart, he'll go along with what Kawasaki say because that's what he's been saying to us. I need a factory team to develop me and move me on. Well, if you say that, then you have to let them develop you and move you on even if it you personally think, mm, is this right for me? You have to believe in them as much as they believed in you by signing you. I find it quite interesting to see what's going to happen with this. Like you mentioned there about how it's going to develop, Gordo. For me, it's a real test of whether or not Provec are still one of the top teams in the paddock because Jonathan Ray moves on and Ray's been that margin for error for them for years. He's been the guy that makes the difference, allows them to win races, challenge for world championships. He's he's a six-time world champion for a reason. But now, 
all the cracks that are very clearly there within Provac, the Marcel versus Reba dynamic, all those things where you've had so many of the same people for the best part of 10 years. I'm, I'm really curious to see if it still works or if that team now needs to actually take a long, hard look at themselves and say, we do things badly. We're not making the progress that other teams have made. We've had the same ideas. We've gotten a bit stale. This is a chance for them to regenerate and, and move on because you can't really do that whenever you've got Johnny. Johnny's there to, you know, for nine years to be that champion, to be the guy that gets the job done. And now they've actually got a lot of pressure on their shoulders to evolve while also actually having a lot of pressure taken off because the expectation isn't that you're going to win every weekend. Yeah, I'm not sure if that that's quite fair on the team, honestly, uh, because the what's the missing link? Why is Johnny leaving? He's not leaving because of the team. He's losing because the, the, they're not being provided with a motorcycle capable of winning races anymore. Or if they do, it's because Johnny has to pull out a special and somebody else has to have a bit of bad luck. I mean, that's that's why Johnny's leaving. He's not leaving for any other reason. He's in the same group of people around him and in the other side of the garage from him um, for all those years. Um, he's got two electronics guys moved over this year, so they took that side of the deal more seriously. So I think that's an evolution for him. You know, not many teams have got that set up of three full-time electronics engineers. Um so I think they do change and evolve, but the problem is all they're doing is dancing around the same problem, is that they've got a long-stroke, old-designed engine, which is no longer in the vanguard of technology by any stretch of the imagination. And this year they tried to go in a different direction with the bike, which does show that they're trying to evolve. And even though the performance is better, it hasn't been the same jump as other people. I don't see that as being automatically the team. I see that as being there is no more new tricks to be found in the old Kawasaki. It's just an age thing. The bike is old now. Well, I think for me, Gordo, the electronics, it's a fair point, but it was also forced on them because Davide left. It wasn't a decision for that team to make. Okay, but it was also, well, if we're losing a guy like that, maybe we need to up our game in electronics and bring in two people. So if one person's elected to leave, right, that guy was good. Daniel was great on the other side of the garage. What do we need? Okay, we need some fresh thinking and we need a full-time person for Johnny and an overseer. A collator. The, the, what they said to me was they were creating so much data all the time that the two guys who were there trying to get the bike to go faster around the racetrack every weekend were overloaded. They couldn't go through all the data to work out what to do next. So there's somebody in charge of that now who, who now collates both sides of the garage and, and decides this is, this is, look at that, there's the obvious thing. But you needed more manpower to do it. They, I think they've constantly evolved. The problem is that the bike hasn't. That is that is it. That is to me is the biggest problem. Until, we only know the answer to that question when they bring a new bike. I don't think we're going to know the answer to that question when they bring a new rider. We know the rider that's coming in is not as good as Jonathan Ray because no superbike rider in history is as successful as Jonathan Ray. And how many times did Perry say in public and mean it? Because you can see it burning in his eyes. Johnny is a difference. Johnny is a difference. Johnny is a difference. You know, but that team has made two world champions. Sykes, who had incredibly weird riding style, and he still, they managed to harness that and get him to win the championship and could have won two more. And then when they got Johnny, who's obviously a more complete and more rounded rider than, and, and got a more, a style that can adapt, be adapted to more different types of setup and real changes and so on than, than Tom could. And that's just a reality um, that we've seen unfold over the years. 
Johnny can't win on that bike anymore. And if Johnny can't win, Bassani probably can't win. So the expectation thing you're saying is, I think everybody now understands, okay, here we go. And they were blindsided by Johnny uh, deciding to go because they really, to me, they, they kept the cards very close to their chest, but to me, they really did not expect Johnny. But Johnny's been here before. He realised he couldn't win in a Honda time ago. And he's probably leaving Kawasaki with more regret and even closer relationship to those people. But ultimately, he knows he can't win a championship or a bucket of races on a Kawasaki, so he's going to somewhere he can. But I think that's also indicative of the issues within the team because they didn't believe Johnny would leave. They were full sure in their belief that Ray loves us, he's going to stay with us forever, there's no need to worry about this. And when the team say we're talking to half a dozen riders from MotoGP and World Superbikes, we're talking to five riders from... Moto 2, we're talking to two or three riders in BSB. When they say this at Magni Core, it says we're talking to 15 riders, which means we're incredibly indecisive or nobody wants to ride for us. And I think that's, for me, very indicative of where they're at right now. Whether it's the bike, whether it's the team, it's the full package. They're not an appealing prospect unless you're an Axel Bassani that needs to be a factory rider to be able to get paid for the next stage of his career. And I think... That's where now we get to really see where the team stack up. So I'm curious to see how that plays out right from round one next year. Yeah, I understand what you're saying. And I, and part of me, I mean, I agree that they got blindsided and maybe they let the emotions and the, the personal relationship going out. But we have to redefine what you mean by team then. Because remember, there's Kawasaki, the home factory. There's Kawasaki Europe, who are the overall people who are responsible for the projects. And Provec, who are the people who are like the logistics facilitators, etc. Some of the people who work in Kawasaki in that garage are working for Kawasaki, and some of those people are working for Provec. One side of the argument is Provec. I don't think any one of those people gets an automatic. Uh, well, the person who'll get the final choice of who the riders are is a person that pays the money. But it, it all goes back to the trying to make mega results out of a bike that is no longer mega in relationship to the other bikes around about it. That's as simple to me. The Yamaha is a bit more modern. It's got its limits, but it's a more rounded package than the Kawasaki, which used to be the most rounded package. And it's nowhere near as fast as a Ducati. It's nowhere near as fast in a straight line as a Honda or a BMW. In power terms, I mean, whether they get the gearing right or the rider uses the power properly, whatever. Top speed, yeah. But it's not the bike it was in relation to the competition. So... How much is the team? Well, what is the team? Who Who's responsible for the decisions? It's not all Provec. It's not all Kawasaki. It's not all Kawasaki Europe. Well, I'm, I'm quite curious to see what happens for the team going forward now, though. Without Jonathan Ray, how many sponsors view it as an attractive team to be a part of? And then more budget has to come in from Japan. And then that's that's where it gets really difficult for them. I think the momentum is now totally shifted against them. And this is where... You need to make wholesale changes. I don't think any of the problems they've got are a lack of budget. I think it's all down to a lack of a modern motorcycle. That's it. I think every single other issue they've got stems from that. Do you think Johnny would have left Kawasaki to risk at this time in his career if Kawasaki brought out a really new bike two years ago, like the BMW, and gone to 80mm pistons and stuff? I don't think he would have left. He'd have said, right, here we go. If Kawasaki had been even worse and their performances relative to the competition, and had got the camshaft update and everything else, 
had 500 revs more, which coincidentally, just to tell everybody, they didn't at the last break point of when they decide to do the balancing rules or not. They never made that because Johnny's results have got better, they haven't reached that point where they can now bring in the camshafts. Remember, they, they gained 250 revs, they gained 250 revs. If they got the camshafts and the other things they needed to match in with that, they would be able to actually introduce those 500 revs. So 500 revs more might be enough for somebody like Johnny to hang on to the coattails of Batista and then use his advantages in other places. But it hasn't happened, it didn't happen. Um, and unfortunately, that's led to Johnny leaving. And a great big question. I mean, unfortunately in one way, unfortunately in another. I mean, isn't it great, all these changes? It's fantastic. So everybody needs a good, is going to get a good kick up the backside this year, except Ducati. Um, and I think it might be very good for Kawasaki to have another rider. Just when we're talking about the rider moves as well, one of the things that's interesting just before we take the break is what happens with Honda. We've obviously talked about the potential for Rinaldi to move over. Otherwise, Lacuona and Vierge will stay where they are. Taz McKenzie's a rider that looks likely to move up onto the Superbike next year. Obviously, podium man at Suzuka this year. Honda want to reward that. What's going to be interesting is to see what happens for that lineup going forward because Hafish looks like he's going to be out. Eric Renato looks like he's going to be out. And then it means Tazmac moves up. I wouldn't be too surprised if it's Adam Norridan moving up with him. And then on the super sport bike, whether you keep Norridan's brother or another Malaysian rider, Petronas are happy. And uh, Gordo, you're happy. You see a Scotsman on the super bike grid again. As I said before, doesn't matter to me who's riding where, it's up to them. But Taz is a super bike champion BSB. He won a race in Supersport this year, however weird the circumstances, he still held it together to do it. Unfortunately, he hasn't had the bike, even in the 600 class, or, sorry, Supersport class, um, to let him shine the way that we know he could. He's not automatically going to walk in from BSB and, and run away with anything. Generally, those days are gone for any national championship, unfortunately. Um, but there's no reason why a guy like him can't be there a couple of years in a Superbike and start making some real impressions. But the bike's got to be better. The Honda's got its problems, considering how new and modern and fast it is. But it's, it's getting it to work around the racetrack is a problem. The, the, he's, he's going to have the opposite problem if he goes to the Honda Superbike, as he's had in Honda Supersport. No matter what they do, the bike is slow, literally slow, in a straight line, in pure engine performance compared to his competition. And that's just the Yamahas. Then you move on to the Ducatis and the MVs and things that will get bigger capacity. So... It can't be, to me, him going to Superbike can't be a worse season than he's had in Supersport, even though he won a race. I know that sounds daft because he won a race, but he's a Superbike guy. He wants to be a Superbike guy. He's used to riding Superbike. As you say, when he's had the right bike and package and everything else, he actually got onto the uh, the podium at Suzuka 8 hour, which is always a tough race in every possible way. Um does he deserve a chance? Of course he does. Any, to me, any national champion should be being taken. If they've got a desire to come, should be being taken to World Superbike by whoever it is, the organiser, the one of the title sponsors, I don't know, you know, whatever. Um, find a way of bringing the clear and, clear and simple next best young American, Australian, Japanese, whatever. When you've got a strong, strong candidate, the World Superbike Championship should be bringing those people over. Finding a way between all the the various monies that come in, find a way of doing it. And Taz, he's done his year in a six hundred. He's won a race, which I think everybody in the paddock was blown away by. 
So he's like the same as, and a, and a different reason from Rafael de Rosa, who took forever to win a race. He's so good a rider, and he took forever. When he won that race, even his rivals were happy because he thought, oh, thank God, the guy's made a, you know, he can now go whenever he retires as a winner, a race winner. He was obviously good enough to be for a long time. So, you know, for Taz, you know, everybody was happy to see him win, but he needs to move to Superbike. Because staying there on a not competitive bike is a waste of time. At least he'll learn more in Superbike, even if the bike's not fully competitive. Yeah, when Taz won, I think everyone was happy, not just for Taz, but Midori as well, to see Marowaki winning. It was her own effort as well. It wasn't the family team. This was one of the feel-good stories of the season, for oh, sure. It's a fairy story. Brilliant. A Japanese fairy story. You know, a European fairy story. It was just magical. And you can see the look of joy in her face. And she puts in the effort. And, and she's got the guts to, to take those decisions. And it paid off. She's won, she's a winner. The, the project she set up is a winning project. And... Uh... The project we've set up needs to take an ad break, Gordos, that uh, we're able to pay the invoices for you. So when we come back after this, we're going to finish off Bit World Superbikes from Portimao and we're going to have a quick look at two world championships that were decided. Renthal Street, Chain and Sprockets are perfectly matched for maximum power transfer and efficiency. From racetrack to daily rider, with over 800 fitments, Renthal Street has a final drive solution for almost any bike. Use Renthal.com to find the correct fitment. Welcome back to the Paddock Pass podcast. Gordo, just to finish off on Portimao World Superbikes, let's have a quick chat about, well, Kawasaki again, because double crash in the Super Pole race and then pretty much just a disaster of a Sunday for Jonathan Ray. This was clearly Ray thinking, this is one of my last chances to be able to win a race for Kawasaki. He went all in and he made two big mistakes. Yeah, he actually said in the debrief at the end that he said, I thought the Super Pole race was my best chance to win you know, maybe my final race for Kawasaki. He said we don't go that well at Hereth, so maybe he's not that hopeful. Um, relatively speaking, Johnny's one of those guys that always, when he gets his helmet on, he thinks he's going to win. Um, but ultimately, I think well, he said it that he looked at that Super Bowl race as the best chance to win. What happened? Bit over eager, distracted by the ride on the outside at the trickiest corner on the track in terms of the front, lost the front. Alex following one bike behind instantaneously gets on the white line, too much brake, loses the double crash, synchronised crashing, everybody couldn't quite believe it. Um, at the same corner, not even like one corner later, it was just like, it summed up a lot of the, the luck, the the reality, whatever you want to call it, that Kawasaki have had to endure this year. Um, you know, Johnny's won a race, he's had loads of podiums now, He started off with very few. He's making that up now. He's back to getting as much as he can out of the bike, I think. And vice versa, the team are getting the maximum out of Johnny. But yeah, I think there was just a bit of a human error, human anxiety on Jonathan Ray, like over, you know, lack of judgment call. Well, just a simple mistake, um, which is, just shows that everybody's human. Um, but it also maybe shows you how desperate he was to get that result and he didn't want to lose time and needed to pass immediately, immediately. Because he knew the two guys at front would disappear if he wasn't right on a coattail, uh, even over a ten lap race. And yeah, I, I mean the talking point of all talking points. I mean, geez, oh, two two riders from the same team crashing was the front and the same corner. Not oil, not you know, not some kind of reason why it was it was bizarre. Eh? I mean, it was bizarre. Everybody's looking back to Nurburgring nineteen ninety and Mick Doohan and uh, Pierre Francesco Keeley doing synchronized high sides, different teams but both Hondas, and that was the last time. 
I remember that. I mean, somebody out there will probably immediately go, oh, no, what about such and such? But I, that's as far back as I went to find something quite the same weirdness. Why? Just um, when you look at that as well, Gordo, BMW, good talking points as well for the weekend because we saw Garrett Gerloff, Michael Vandermark looking strong. I thought their battle in race one was terrific. When you see Vandermark into the downhill section, I think it's turn 11 down into 12, you saw a rider that's not afraid of crashing, not afraid of getting injured again. He's just building that confidence back. And Gerloff, he's found that confidence. He's been the top BMW rider for most of the season. This weekend, again, we saw him have a really good weekend. It, you know, To go 4-8-4 in the three races for Gerloff was really important. But more than anything else, he overtook a lot of people. And this is a sign, again, of the progress that he's making with that bike and that team. Yeah, it's a, it's a very bright glimmer of light in that whole BMW project, because you know who's turning up there next year. So that was good news on everybody. Phil Maron. Yeah, 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 yeah. Um, but I mean, obviously, that whole thing's going to take another step next year, whether it's up or forward or whatever, I don't know, because they've taken a few steps in the past and they haven't been where they wanted to go. But that there's clearly an improvement in the overall understanding and ability to set the bike up for the race within the whole BMW camp, whether it's transferring everywhere, we know, because all the riders tell us and all the engineers tell us that they've all got access to each other's data. There are no secrets in that team. There's no keeping stuff away. That is the most four-bike factory team in the whole grid, as far as I can see. They have deliberately got another team which is full factory. They've got a lot of experience in there now. They're, and it's also noticeable that it's happening on both sides. If it was the two BMW motorhead bikes that were going forward and not the two Bonovos, then you would say it's a bit of an issue. Then you look at the human side of it, as you were basically talking about here, but that needs to be a, some context for why those two guys were able to do what they do. And to me, that's a better understanding of their own bike from BMW and some obviously technical improvements. But you look at what Gerloff did, that's confidence. That's the thing you can't buy in your rider. You can only find confidence. You can only you can create it yourself, but usually by results. If you're riding as well as you know you can and you're not getting results, it starts to affect your confidence. When he's riding better, he gets better results. That is feeding better results. He can still have bad results and he can still not qualify well and, and qualifying is a bit of a lottery now because of the yellow flag thing and all that. Lots of people losing their best times through no fault of their own. But Vandermark was the happy story of the weekend almost as much as any other because he came into that media centre when he had his first good performances Friday, beaming all over his Normally, he's not a, he's not that he dislikes us. He just doesn't like doing any media stuff, Mikey. And he was happy to talk about it. And the really weird thing is he was happy to talk about the dark times that he had during his recovery. He went a bit deep. But the whole time he's smiling. Why? Because in his mind and his heart, he's now coming out the end of it. And look at what he did on the weekend. Okay, he lost some places near the end. Racecraft's a bit rusty. You know, and he's one of the great racecrafty people. He's won championships. And you do that by being a bit cleverer than people. Basically, that's how you win championships. You're a bit smarter, even if it's just street smarts in a fight in the last corner. That's how you win championships. And he's got his mojo back again. You can find it; it's coming back again. And that is very good news because what are BMW going to need? If, if we want to see top rack winning races, what are BMW going to have to have? One, a bike that's good enough. Two, a, a general idea how to make it better. But three, other guys pushing them. So we'll know if Top Rack's doing really well or whether it's a, you know, it, it's the bike's got a bit better because of what the other guys are doing. And there's at least Gerloff and at least Van der Mark 
if they can replicate that in any kind of way, then BMW can use them as a gauge. The same way we talked about before with Kawasaki. If Johnny's doing well, you don't know if it's Johnny. If Alex is doing well, you know it's Kawasaki. You know, or, or choose a team. You know, it's a, choose a second rider. When the second rider's doing well, your bike's pretty good. It's not just one side of the game. And going into the last round of the year, Gerloff, he's 13th in the World Championship. He's only five points off eighth. If he ends up eighth in the Championship, that's a really good performance by him. The man currently in eighth, Xavi Vieira, he's, I think it's fair to say, Xavi's surprised everyone this year. He's been really consistent. He's ahead of Lecuona in the Championship, only by four points. But coming into this season, I think everyone expected Lecuona was going to be the dominant rider and Javi was there to make up the numbers for Honda. That hasn't been the case this year. He's He's been strong and consistent a lot of the times. Obviously, Honda has their flaws, but I think Javi's done a lot to improve his stock and standing in the paddock. Lecuona this weekend, a little bit like Aragon. Aragon, he was on the verge of that top six all the way through the weekend. This weekend, it was the top eight, which doesn't sound like much, but it is a sign of progress for Honda. Aragon, they knew the bike was going to work well there. Portimao, they didn't. Now we'll go to Jerez, and if they're in the top eight all weekend with Lacona, I think that's a sign that they are making some progress with it, even though they clearly need to make more. Yeah, um, I spoke to some Honda people at the weekend. They're not good at talking Honda, but they talked a bit at the weekend. Um, and it's fairly obvious they are making little marginal gains. I mean, they need to make large gains, but they are slowly chipping away and finding optimum settings for the to me, the compromised bike they've got, which is, I think, the fundamentally the issue of that bike is the overall design, uh, especially when trying to run Pirelli tyres. Clearly, that bike was prioritised to run on different tyres to be successful in the 8-hour, more than it was to be run in production racing on Pirelli tyres. Un- that's an unfortunate decision to me, if that's the way it was. And you've also got to look at maybe Honda just haven't got the same level of instant engineering know-how when you look at the problems they've got in MotoGP. To the point whereby the world champion, the best rider of his generation is leaving Honda and MotoGP. Um, if that's the top of the shop, then the one stage down is maybe not going to be any better. However, I agree with you. I think they're showing signs. And maybe they just need the right rider on it. A rider that can mesh with it or, or ignore the problems. And I also think that from a few of the things that we've taken as read about the Honda are maybe inaccurate. And it's their fault if we've got it wrong because they don't tell us anything. Um, but it seems to be that the bike itself is... It, the riders do understand what's going on with the bike now, but the, the bike just maybe isn't doing what the riders need it to do because of the package. Um, yeah, that's that's the gist of my understanding now is that some of the problems that we thought the Honda had aren't true. It's other problems. But because they never communicate anything and they always play downplay things, I'll try and put you off, literally put you off. I've got a feeling that the Honda's um, more rider-friendly than it was. A lot more rider-friendly than it was. The trouble is it maybe just isn't capable of doing what the riders are asking it to do. I think it's a, it is a lot more rider-friendly. But they still have serious problems. You know? Let's kick it on into the support classes as well then, Gordo, because Alvaro Bautista, he's 60 points clear of the World Championship. So we know he's going to be the Superbike World Champion as long as he wobbles around to 14th in race one. So we'll take it for red. Bautista's going to wrap that one up in a red. But it wasn't wrapped up this weekend. What was wrapped up, Supersport and Supersport 300. Nicola Bulaga, very deserving Supersport champion. As dominant as what we saw from Andrea Locatelli a few years ago, riding really well this year. 
qualifies well, always pretty much on the pole position. If you think back through the season, missed out in the front row in Phillip Island, missed out in the pole in Imola because of a yellow flag infringement. But his whole thing this season has been pole position, hole shot, lead every lap, win the race. He did that to clinch the championship on Saturday. Yeah, very impressive. Um, Again, I think it's exactly similar uh, in a totally different class to Batista. He's maximising everything he's got out of the bike. There, I think everybody understands now that maybe the, the Ducati this year has come on so well and was given a couple of early season allowances that maybe made it a bit too fast in relation to other people because all the Ducati riders are having their day. The, what they don't have is the benefit of a factory team, the consistency of somebody like Bulliger. I mean, Bulliger didn't have a great season last year. It was quite demoralising for him. It was quite easy for him to not have a great season this year. And look at what he did. So to me, there is a definite correlation between the capabilities of the bike over a full race distance and he's getting super pole all the time. So, yeah, there is a case now for maybe in the winter somebody saying, you know what, let's just bring that bike back a little bit. Um, but he's he's exactly, you can't criticise Bautista for riding perfectly and you can't criticise Beluga for riding perfectly. A wise man once told me that the rider who, who maximises the bike more than anybody else in that class is actually... Manzi. So it would be very interesting to see what Manzi could do on a Ducati. Because he might even do better, but he might not. Not everybody takes their V-twin. Not every single rider can ride a V-twin. Um, but you can see how much Manzi tried. That's been a great example this year. You know, every rider's got flaws. But Manzi's all action. You could just watch Manzi lap on the track on his own. He's great. He's quite tall. So he's all arms and legs and stuff and he's always taking his feet off the pegs and moving them around and all that. You could watch Manzi racing on his own. So we had a great fight in that championship this year. The trouble was, just like in Superbike, there's always just a bit more advantage for the guy in red. But you can't take in off of Ducati, Bulliger and that team because what they did what they were expected to do and won the World Championship. They did it around early. They did it three races early. So in a class like that where things have been rebalanced and so many more bikes have come together around the same performance level you know he's the one that's gone head and shoulders the next nearest Ducati guys have had their days but he's had them every day so to me it, it, that is a, an arithmetical championship result but you have to be the final link of that as a rider to get the maximum out of it and other Ducati riders haven't although they're not in the factory team so it's the same when you add the factory team with the money and blah, 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 that the result is the way it should have been this year. Yeah, I'm quite interested to see how it plays out next year for him as well. Obviously, jumping onto a super bike, he deserves the chance. Now it's up to him to show that he warrants the chance and that he's able to take it on the next step. Just looking at Supersport for next year, I think it's quite interesting. Obviously, Manzi looks like he's going to stay at Tankate for next season. That's always been said to be a two-year contract. Unless he's offered a Superbike ride, he'll be on that bike next year. Yamaha obviously want to get more support next year to bring themselves closer to Ducati. You've got Huertas replacing Bulaga. Looks like Glenn Van Stralen might be on the Tankate bike next year in place of Jorge Navarro. We could have two extra triumphs, two extra MVs on the grid next year. The class, which... You know, five years ago was just dead in the water, is now actually really exciting. Well, I don't think it was dead in the water five years ago. I think it was becoming monotone five years ago. That was the complaint that that you know it was just becoming too many Yamahas in this in the same one or two teams winning all the races. That's not dead in the water. That's just 
nobody else made bikes to suit the class. So what did they do? Change the class. Very good idea. Top marks, guys. Well done. Because they've re-energised it gigantically. Um, and it's also presented, other than the fact that Bolivia was quite dominant this year, the racing's always brilliant. And there's always somebody that's had three Weetabix in the morning. Other breakfast cereals are available, but <laughs> there's always somebody who just suddenly this weekend, oh, it's his, well, Van Stralen this weekend. Oh, Caracasulo next weekend. There's always people coming through. And because the, the, the rules are pretty level, because the the bikes are fast enough now, you're buying performance by capacity. So the Ducatis and the MVs and the Triumphs have got a certain level of performance just because the engine size is bigger than the 600s but we've got a lot of experience and knowledge in the 600s and they rev higher and in some tracks they work a bit better a bit more nimble whatever even the kawasaki which looked as if it was just not going to be um and it's deeply unfortunate the way Chu got sorry Chu got injured just after he'd won his first race because how big a psychological breakthrough is that for every rider it's a great class this class and everywhere you look, you're not quite sure what's going to happen. Is Schrotter going to be the best MV this week, or is it going to be Safoglu? We'll have more of them next year. Great. We'll have more Triumphs. Great. You know, it's it, who's struggling in that class? Probably Triumph. And that's just because of rider injury and bad luck and, and a lack of money and sponsorship problems and so on. We've, we've seen a name change in that team in the middle of the year. They're still up there fighting. Top five, top ten. What do you make of Supersport 300 then as well, Gordo? Obviously, Jeffrey Bowes becomes the first double world champion in the class. He's going to stay in the class for another year to defend that championship. So he's trying to be a triple world champion in the, in the class. We saw him move up to a Supersport bike. It didn't work out for him. He's staying in 300s, but we have seen riders make those moves. You mentioned Safoglu there. We saw it, obviously, with Huertas and Manuel Gonzalez, two riders that have been able to move on as well and show what they can do. Bose ended up winning the championship by seven points and his was his was a well-deserved championship. You know, he was the guy that won the races. Jose Perez was the consistent guy that was fourth more often than not, but fourth almost every race. And then on Sunday, he had to win the race. He won it across the line. The stewards took it off and he was docked a spot. As it was, it didn't make any difference. Yeah, um, if you want to win world championships, you've generally got to win some races at least. You do get champions that haven't won one, but it doesn't happen very often. Um, great performance. I mean, he, and, and he rides with a passion. He's he's fiery-eyed wee guy, big guy. He's quite a big guy for 300 Super Sport, which can't be an advantage to him. Jeffrey's cleverer than any of them, and that's why he does what he does. As he said to me at the end of the races, um, in the champion interview, after all the Donna video stuff, he said, sometimes you have to be clever and sometimes you have to fight. And he, on Sunday, won his World Championship by finishing 11th. You know, that was the day to be clever. It doesn't look great. You know, I thought, well, he must go up there and fight for a bit. And he did a little bit. But he's smart. If he'd have fought and one of those guys, oh, kids, you know, ultimately might have made one stupid mistake. He's out. And then all of a sudden, right, you know, Perez Gonzalez is already to sweep through. Um... It was very interesting. It's it's a kind of great class in some ways and a limiting class in other ways, but we are now seeing riders that are moving through there and moving up to Supersport or anything else. I think Huertas would be pretty good there. He might not be Beluga first year, Beluga first year, but he's a talent. Uh, all day, he's a talent. So he jumped on a superbike and did pretty well. 
um, when he tested for KRT at that Aragon test, I think it was Aragon. Um, so he's a talent. We, we are introducing talents from underneath. I think I agree, even though I argued with him at the time, I take the Loris Baz view that we should probably have stayed with Superstock 600 as a feeder class because you do need a slightly faster bike that you can that the faster riders can get more out of than the quite heavy and not very he- highly powered 350-400s. I'm sure they're a blast to ride down the track and they're probably the perfect bike to ride on a spirited Sunday run in a back road because they're not too fast. Most bikes are too fast down the road. These things would be a ton of fun. But if you want to train riders, you want to bring them up, then you need to do maybe something more than a 400. The... But the biggest thing, and, and people say, no, oh, it's not making as many riders, it's not taking them through the classes as much as you should do. Well, to be honest, that's more of a blockage from the top because it's very easy for super sport teams to say, oh, there's a good Grand Prix guy available now. Moto3 champion from two years ago, won four Moto2 races, guy's available this year because nobody in MotoGP wants him because he's 22, you know, and, he, and, he, and some 18-year-old kid's coming up and kicking his backside because the constantly producing new riders inside MotoGP who are trained to a very high level. So there's always going to be a pool of talent that Supersport teams can easily pick up. I mean, you look at, again this year, you look at the top guys in, in Supersport Championship, a lot of them have all came through. There's Navarro, finally, after all his problems and stuff, on a 10 car bike, finally got a podium at, in Portimao, a very difficult track. It's, you know, it's a real riders track, Portimao. So there's a lot of Navarro in that result, not just because it's a 10 car bike. So... It's easy. That's the biggest problem I've got for Supersport. We need to find a replacement for that class, which gives them more powerful bikes, keeps the balance. What What's great about it is, and I was doing all my stats last night, look at how many different riders won in that class. Look at all the manufacturers won, both KTM riders won, various Yamaha riders won, various Kawasaki riders won. You know, that is what's great about that class. And even if you, you find yourself winning a race because you were in the right place at the right time, you have to be in the right place. So everybody that wins a race in that class deserves it. Um, so yeah, it's doing what it's supposed to do in lots of ways. We're seeing who the younger riders are and who the cleverer ones are and who the more aggressive ones are. But there's, there's still just a little bit missing in that class and it's sometimes too close. You know, you do think we've had some problems in that class with rider safety in the past. It's nothing to do with the racetracks, nothing to do with anything else. It's just when riders ride that closely, that's how they get. Yeah, we had nine different winners, 16 different guys on the podium from 16 races. So it did deliver this year, a good step forward. And Gordo, that brings us to the end of our Portimao pod. But uh, you've got a couple of weeks at home before we have to go and do it all again at Areth for one last time. Yeah, um, and the weather's lovely. That was ironic, sorry. Uh, The weather's dreadful. I want to go go back to Spain and Portugal. Thanks very much. It's dreadful here. It's awful. Um, but apparently we're going to get an Indian summer in the come the uh, the weekend, so they say. That doesn't look right to me looking out the window now. Um, no, no, I, I enjoy my time off. I enjoy going to races. I think the greatest thing about Superbike is that we don't have... I mean, I pity the guys and, and girls in MotoGP, 22 races. Uh, really? I did that for a couple of seasons. I can tell you, it's not good for you. It's not good for you, it's not good for relationships. So I'm quite glad I'm home. And I've got a lot of things to catch up on in every possible way, uh, work-wise, books, you know, everything. So I'll be quite busy till we go away again. And I'm really looking forward to it. I'm looking forward to a finale, uh, which might only be a formality for presenting a new champion. But we got to the final round. 
at one stage this year it looked as if we were going to have the championship wrapped up in Magna Cure and we're going to the final round that in itself is some degree of success for whatever you want to call it balancing rules uh, rules of fortune and misfortune you know we're going to the final round as a to declare a champion even if it's in the first round you can't ask for much more the only thing you can ask for Gordo score prediction for Saturday night Ireland against Scotland in the rugby um, I think genuinely this is one of those games where anything could happen you guys could trounce us quite handsomely because you've put in some mega performances if you guys play the best you can play we're in trouble if we play the best we can play you're in trouble the problem for me is getting quite even if Scotland win getting quite enough points in the right magic set of circumstances for us to getting beaten by South Africa was the key to me we if we wanted to progress we need to do that so it's too much in a lapse of the gods prediction I think well, I'll tell you what I'll, I'll give you a prediction on what I hope for incredibly high scoring game and it goes obviously Scotland win and we win by enough to go through but yeah I, I think we're going to be 30s to 20s I think it's too much talent on the park for it to be a boring sloggy game Scotland aren't a sloggy team We'll either get thrashed or we'll win. It's just how much we win. I have, I have to say, Gordo, if Scotland do manage to win, for me, it's right up there with the best Scottish performances of all time. It'll be something special. We know what has to happen, Gordo. We both need bonus points. We need Scotland to win by four points. And me and you are both happy with that. South Africa go home and uh, it all works out fairly well. Yeah, that would be an ideal situation, seeing as how we're so close across the water. Uh, I've got a lot of South African pals, and you know they they love their rugby, they're world champions. It would be bizarre if they did go out now. Um, but yeah, no, I agree with you. Scotland's got to put in a shift, the like of what we've never seen. But our only hope is to be just so creative you can't defend against it, and we're capable of that. You've got the madman directing the play in our team. And when he's on forum and when the other guys are up for it. But I think the good thing is everybody's going to be so up for it. You know, when we, when you write Scotland off is when we play our best. Well, two of us are definitely going to be up for a Gordo and <laughs> it's going to be something worth seeing. You can hear in the background, even little Bailey, my pup, is getting excited now at the prospect of the rugby on Saturday. So that's definitely going to be the focus of attention between now and Hareth for us. But uh, we'll also have MotoGP shows. We'll preview the Indonesian Grand Prix next weekend. And then we'll also have, obviously, an Indonesian review coming up after that round. So check out all of your normal podcast feeds to be able to get yourself up to date on our review show from the Japanese Grand Prix, our Mark Marquez news show where we had Neil Hodgson joining us as a quick phone-in guest. And then also, obviously, any other shows coming up. Also, check out patreon.com forward slash paddockpasspodcast where you can get all the latest shows and additional content through the course of the season. Gordo, I'll see you down in Hareth. Looking forward to the final rounds of the year. Cheers, mate. Looking forward to it myself. And a big thank you to Renthal Street for supporting the podcast as well.